Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9 through 14, and the message entitled, The Wise Pastor. Uh, Solomon, as you know, has come to the end of this book here as he experienced uh, searching out by human wisdom all that is done under the sun by man in order to reach satisfaction, fulfillment in life, but he has come up empty, revealing his lack of wisdom. He walked with God, he was wise. He walked away from God, he was unwise. He's back with God. But let me say, before we begin, I think it's the exception that come back, the rule do not come back. I think the majority remain in the world. And so we have God's grace, yes, but here's a stern warning. Even so that he has searched high and low through science, pleasure, wine, building feats, women and money, only to find out the most valuable thing that he lost was time. If you're a young person, let me tell you something. The key years to your life is 18 to 25. To invest, to get prepared for life, to walk with God, to be an example to others, you will not get that age bracket back, 18 to 25. And the longer you wait in partying and doing what you want or walking without God, it will be more difficult for you, if not impossible. So I would encourage you as young people, 18 to 25, very key years. Now for that reason, here Solomon warns the young person to remember this creator in the days of his youth before the days of age come, where you have no pleasure in them. Because... Um, uh, if such is the case, they will perish into eternity without God. And he warns that young person in chapter 12, verse 1, as he comes to the end. And so Solomon here, uh, the preacher, closes his book in these verses, declaring the purpose of writing the book of Ecclesiastes, which falls into three things. Let me read our text for us here, beginning verse 9. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out. And said in order many proverbs, the preacher sought to find acceptable words. And what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goats, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so, the purpose of writing the books falls into three things. First, we have here to teach God's word, verse 9 and 10. That's number one. Secondly, to teach God's word effectively, verse 11 and 12. And thirdly, to teach the duty of man regarding God's word verse 13 and 14. It begins with the purpose of the preacher here was to teach God's word, 9 and 10. Notice in verse 9, the teaching of God's word is a mark of wisdom. He says, and moreover, because the preacher was wise. Solomon, as you know, had been known for his wisdom as he walked with God, and um, he had been sought out by all. Back in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29 through 31, the wisdom of Solomon was great. It was given to him of God. Um, he excelled in wisdom. All the men of the east and Egypt all came. He excelled them. 
They came just to listen to him. You remember the parable of the two harlots and how one rolled over the baby and tried to switch it, and then when he gave the order of divide the kid in two, they all, he knew the real mother would, would, would say, no, no, leave him alone. And everyone was in awe of it. The queen of Sheba came, and she heard of Solomon's uh, wisdom, and, and she says that it was a true report, which I heard in my own land, about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and I saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half of them was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceeds the fame which I heard. Happy are your men and happy are these your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed is the Lord your God who delights in you, setting you on the throne of Israel because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. 1 Kings 10, 6 9. And so God set this man as an example for him, but Solomon had been led astray from the Lord by his foreign wives. Something that was prohibited and warned against way back in Deuteronomy. And yet, he thought himself to be the exception. How about you? Do you think that you're the exception? I don't think so. He became unequally yoked. In 1 Kings 11, 1 and 2, it says, but, but King Solomon, contrast, loved many foreign women as well as the daughters of Pharaoh, women of Moabites, Ammonites, Edenites, Sidonians, Hittites, from the nation of whom the Lord has said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Love, sexual love, emotional love, but not the love of God. Okay? And here he became unfaithful to God. When you fall in love with someone else more than God, you will be unfaithful to God. If you love God first, even if your marriage is on the rocks and opportunities come for adultery, you will not because your love for God is greater, not simply the absence of the opportunity. Love is the purest, purest and the most powerful motive that God honors. Very, very important. Now, he multiplied wives to himself. It says and he has 700 wives and uh, princes and 300 concubines, so he's a busy man. And um, his wives turned away his heart, for it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart for two other gods second time, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. He was the, um, as was the heart of his father David, verse 3 and 4. And so here again, you have before and after. And how often we have seen in our lives people who walk with God and then how they destroy their lives. Well, we see some come back, I believe is the exception. We have the record not only in Scripture, but we see it in life all the time. Now Solomon had um, now returned to God, and once again, he is wise. And that's always a turning point. When we see the, our error and we ask, repent, we ask forgiveness through repentance and we ask God to cover us and he accepts us. Now the consequences remain at times and you have to deal with those consequences graciously, honorably, through the power of the Spirit of God and the grace of God. The preacher here in verse 1, uh, verse 14, is the one gathering the assembly to teach them. Of course, this is Solomon. It's through the book in chapter 1, chapter 2. You'll find it throughout there. The preacher Solomon is in contrast, uh, has contrasted the wise and the fool in Ecclesiastes. 
In the Proverbs, he does the same thing with the simple one or the foolish one, the wise one. Those who walk with God, those who don't. All of us can look back upon our life, how foolish we were and the years that we wasted, the things that we were involved in. And we see our wisdom in hearing the gospel and turning to him and having him cleanse us and to turn us to God himself. And we see the contrast of two different lives completely. In fact, that's the first response of people when you come to the Lord. They say, man, you used to be fun. Now you're weird. Because you're not, you're not living a life of sin anymore. All of a sudden, you're different. You look at life a little different. The preacher Solomon, um, wisdom here, had to do with his life relationship to its creator. And that's always the most important. First, the vertical axis, then the horizontal. It's not the reverse. If my life is not right with people, usually it's not right with God. When my life is right with God, then my life with people will be in accord. And so here, notice in verse 9, still the teaching of God's word is to impart spiritual knowledge. Um, he still taught the people knowledge. So again, now coming back to God. The knowledge that Solomon is teaching is God's knowledge, not man's. The individuals that he taught were the people of God, the community of God's redeemed. Those who draw from God, those who are growing, developing, and maturing in God. Those who are walking hand in hand with God. The knowledge would inform them about the mind and the will of God and the purposes of God. And they would submit themselves to God. And this has been the message to every generation, regardless of what a culture, regardless of the nation, regardless of the time. It's always the same message. God's word never changes. Now notice at the end of 9 and into 10, the teaching of God's word is done through a variety of ways. He first mentions by Proverbs. Yes, he pondered and sought out and said in order many Proverbs. The word ponder means to weigh, indicating a pair of scales, testing, the proof, to consider. So you're assessing things. But listen, you cannot assess anything in value or weight unless there's a standard measure. All right? Our society has done away with all measure, and they make everything equal. No, it isn't. It's to say that a nickel, a dime, a quarter, a 50-cent piece, they're all equal because they're diverse. No, diversity means different, not equal. So society in this corrupt culture has redefined the word and has corrupted and destroyed the true meaning of it. And so here again, um, weighing it. This is the only time it appears in the Old Testament in this form. Now the phrase sought out means to investigate, to examine thoroughly, to explore. So you're making some face value of things. You're looking, you're choosing, and what's the best? And, you know, when you go to the store, you grab two melons, and you look at them, and you go, okay, well, I'm going to take this one. You've made a judgment, okay? When you buy a car, whatever you do, the word here is use of God to search out the heart of man in Jeremiah 17.10. Only he knows completely. He doesn't have to figure it out. He doesn't have to ponder. He, boom, he knows both of these describe the tedious method of, to ensure the best result and the benefit for the student. And that's what happens, you know? If you study, if you grow, if you mature, then you become wiser because you have better understanding. Now, notice the end product was the arranging of many proverbs. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005 in 1 Kings 4, 32. Very prolific man. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, is the introduction to the Proverbs in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. The men of Hezekiah copied 
Solomon's Proverbs, and they recorded them for them in Proverbs 25, 1 on. Um, and this, this was a man. He was just, he was a, a botanist, a zoologist, he, I mean, poet, a songwriter, all kinds of things. Now, this was by the wisdom that God gave to him. It's easy to start attributing things to us, but it was God who had given it to him. In fact, when he left God, he proved how stupid he was. Now, if God's made you a wise person, then you have the potential to be the most stupid person in view of the light that's been given to you, right? When you go the opposite way. And either you think you're the exception or you think that it doesn't apply to you. Both are wrong. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes contains many Proverbs. Chapter 10 is a good example. When you get a chance, you can read it there. But notice, by using appropriate words also, the preacher sought to find acceptable words. The word acceptable means pleasant, delightful. The, those words that communicate and make clear the intent and the purpose to bring clarity of the intent and the purpose and to bring glory to God. Whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. Whatever you do. There are many key words and phrases as you go through the book of Ecclesiastes. The word vanity, which means vapor, breath, appearing 71 times in the Old Testament in the noun form, 38 times in Ecclesiastes. Vanity, 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 vexation of spirit, nothing new under the sun. Vanity, emptiness. He's going to talk about the wind. You grab it. Try to, have you ever tried to grab a fistful of wind? Gone. Solomon used the word for the unsatisfying, the waste of time, frustration, useless, absurdity, of no profit, depending on the context. But once again, what is it that you're losing that's most valuable in life? Time. You never get time back. You crash your car, you buy another one. Your house burns down, you build another one. Time, kiss it goodbye. Never come back. The other expression equivalent to this is grasping for the wind, as I said, seven times. And this is the world, this is the flesh, this is the things that people propagate, and they promise so much, and you try to grab it, and you say, I got it, and you go, where'd it go? They promise so much, but deliver so little. The word profit is another key word. It means advantage, benefit, in the sense of a goal appearing six times. We have to make a good valuation on the things that are being presented to us, the things that we are considering. What is the profit? What is the loss? What is the pros? What is the cons? What's at risk? What's at gain? Very important. The word see appears 46 times describing critical observation to gain knowledge and wisdom. What we look at, that we can clearly see and our mind starts assimilating and accommodating and coming to conclusions of what we see. 21 times in the first person, see. The word toil means misery, travail, energy expended appearing 20 times. And so much of the toil that is done by man, by you and I, before he came to Christ, it's so vain, it's so empty, and yet we, we, we were totally dedicated to it. As I told you often, I would party two, three days, I wouldn't eat, wouldn't sleep. I've never done that for the Lord. I was committed to dying. I was serious. 
but I called it living. Hmm. God is mentioned 42 times. Wisdom is mentioned 29 times. The phrase under the sun appears 25 times, describing the life lived out in the earth apart from God, under the sun. And so everybody has their own philosophy, their own opinion, their own direction, and all of them is always the best, the newest. And because every new generation comes and youth doesn't have the experience, is usually the youth that follow the new lie, which is an all lie. So under heaven is used synonymous with this. And lastly, there's the fear of God appearing six times. Um, words are powerful, and they're valuable objects in life. We must choose them well. We must understand them. We must not play with the meaning of words or flippantly say words, um, but we must examine them according to their definition and how they link up in sentences and what is the whole of the message and the heart of the message. Notice by writing what is fitting, he says, of these words and all these different methods was written was upright, upright, straight, right. Once again, for you to say straight, there has to be a crookedness. For you to say right, there has to be a wrong, a left, a right. Society's culture today has no morals, no ethics, no standards. Everything is the same. It's a contradiction to life and the meaning of words, a redefinition. And what it does is lowers people's consciousness, their conscience, their ability to understand, that pretty soon it's not that they don't want to understand or to think critically as they cannot because they don't have the factors to do so. It's like cement. I don't know if some of you guys work mud. You work cement. Once you lay it down nice and wet, you can work it. But it starts harding up. Just drop your tools, your trolls, take your pads off, and walk away. Come back and break it out the next day. Once it's set, it's hard. The heart. It gets hard. It trusts more in self than in God over and over again through time. Notice this has the idea of being honorable, moral, ethical, having integrity. These are words that you don't find in our culture anymore. Courageous, character, virtue, purity, patriot, godly, courteous. Those words are gone. It's believing in yourself, trusting in yourself, having good energy. And I'm talking about the church, <laughs> not the world. And they still call themselves Christians. Wow. Notice by teaching the words of God, he says, words of truth. The word truth here means reliable and correct the nature of being from God. When God has never spoken a lie. On the other side, the flip side, Satan has never said one true, one true word. It's always a lie. Anytime you deviate from absolute truth, it's a lie. You can lie by omitting information. 
By lying about the information or by just being silent? Many ways you can lie. The truth is in regards to the things of God, the things of man, death, life, sin, redemption, all of that. So if you're going to find out anything about these subjects, you don't go to your science teacher to ask them. They have no idea about it. You go to the Bible. And what you read in the Bible is absolute truth. Now, the majority of the church today does not believe that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. Fuller Seminary does not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. APU does not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And most of the Christian universities and colleges and churches do not. It's a rare exception. And so... If the Bible is not reliable, who's going to tell me what verses and what books are? You? A PhD? Amazing to me today, the arrogance. And that's where the church is at today, in the quote, quote, Christian community. A penis cartoon pictured Lucy and Linus looking out the window at a steady downpour of rain. Boy, said Lucy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? It will never do that, Linus replied confidently. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. You've taken a great load off my mind, said Lucy with a relieved smile. Sound theology pontificated lioness has a way of doing that. Are you that confident in the word of God, ladies and gentlemen? Or are you a pancake half done? As the Old Testament says. Which is it? It'll make a big difference in your life, in the life of your children, your wife, your husband, those around you. The emphasis on teaching the scripture is too numerous to miss. From the Old Testament to the New. In Deuteronomy 6, it speaks about the parents' responsibility to teach to the children, to pass to the second generation. When they rise up, when they put them to sleep. Joshua says that meditate upon the word of God day and night. You'll be prosperous, have good success in Joshua 1.8. Paul the apostle told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20.27, 20, I've given you, I have not shunned to give you the whole counsel of God. You look at 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, doctrine, 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 teach, teach, teach. What's the message today in the church, the emergent church? We don't talk about doctrine. We talk about loving one another. Really? You cannot claim the love of Jesus while rejecting the teaching of Jesus. It's an arrogant boast. It's vain. Vanity of vanity. Vaxation of spirit, nothing new under the sun. The teaching of God's word is not always a priority of churches, as you know, but it's programs and activities and the latest unbiblical craze and movement. Men will be deceived in great numbers, 2 Peter chapter 2 tells us. Right now we're in Jude, in depth. We're going to be dealing with these uh, false teachers and heretics. The teaching of God's word is imparts accurate information about God and man as to not be deceived and destroyed. Uh, Hosea the prophet put it this way, Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priests 
before me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Wow. Now you as a parent have to stand fast, to teach. If your children walk away, you stand. But woe to those children who have the higher responsibility for the knowledge they have possessed. To those much is given, much more is required. So you pray, you hold fast. Each person has to make that decision. The people of God are taught through narrative, story, law, history, prophecy. All of it's inspired of God. It's God's word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for correction and instruction, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished with every good work. You want to be a godly person? Get in the word of God. You want to be a mechanic? Go to trade school. You want to be a liar? Go to law school. But you want to be a man of God, then stay in the Word of God. You want to be a woman of God, the Word of God, nothing else. 2 Peter 1, 20-21 says, The men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin. The word interpretation is terrible translation. No impulse or origin of their own, but they were carried along by the Spirit of God. So what they wrote down is preserved as inerrant and infallible. Different pens, red pen, black pen, purple pen, all that. One person is doing it, the Spirit of God directing and guiding them. So that what you possess is God's inerrant, infallible truth that you can depend your whole life and eternity on. Is that your confidence in the Word of God? Very, very important. And so the purpose of the preacher was to teach God's Word, and rightly so. Now, notice secondly, the purpose of the preacher was to teach God's Word effectively, 11 and 12. You see, there's a lot of teachers who have taught in grammar school, high school, whatever, for 25 years. But they've taught the same thing 25 times. They haven't grown, they haven't developed, neither have their students. A good teacher grows as he teaches. And the people benefit from it. It's teaching effectively. Notice first in order to bring God's people to do the will of God. Listen to the words. The words of the wise are like goads. The wise, in this case, Solomon the preacher, whose words are like gold, which are sharp nails and were used for the ox when it would kick with his hind leg in rebellion against the plow. The ox would jab the goad, inflict pain on himself, and the pain would teach him that self-inflicted pain was not beneficial. The method would bring the ox under submission to do the will of the farmer. The benefit would be twofold. The ox was not hurt, but trained. And the farmer would get his field plowed. Now the words of God, notice, are like goats. They bring pain to our lives. If we are rebellious and fight against God. Pain is good. You might not think so. If you start getting a side ache, you wait, but if it gets more severe, you might have appendicitis. You wait too long, you ignore it, you'll die. If you respond to that pain sensor, you'll live. It's no different with God spiritually. The exact same thing. The sooner we learn that obedience and submission will bring God's care for us, the better off we are, always. 
you as a parent do that with your child. You don't correct them, you don't discipline them, you don't bring consequences, you hate them because you want the best for them. Because you've been around the block a couple of times, a couple of times in your back, a couple of times on your face, and you know better, right? Jesus told Paul in Damascus Road, it is hard for you to kick against the gold, referring to the rebellious of, rebelliousness of Paul against God, while thinking he was doing God's service, Acts 9.5. When he was killing Christians, imprisoning them, he thought he was doing God's service, but he was fighting against God, adding to his own hurt. The will of God gets done. Our ears get tuned to God's voice to transform us to his glory more by, and more by the, day by day through the Spirit of God, Paul tells the Corinthians. God's words are goes to keep the believer on track and step with God through the conviction, the chastening, the consequences. Those are all the messages that you as parents use, and I myself did. Why? Because they work. But sometimes there's very rebellious children, right? Very hard-hearted, very self-willed. And what's the end product of those children? Destruction. First to them, then to others. Notice, in order to bring stability in God's people's lives also. Listen to the words. And the words, scholars are like well-driven nails. The scholar, again, is the master of assemblies, Solomon, the preacher here. Nails are straight pieces of metal, as you know, with heads on one end. And you have to put that baby in. You have to smack it hard enough to drive it in. You don't hit it hard enough, it may bend. You've got to be dedicated. You've got to be committed. Nails are used to build things, to hang pictures, to assemble other things. The nature of them is to hold things together. The result of putting a nail in, strength and stability. This is God's word. The words of God are like well-driven nails. They penetrate the heart of lost man for salvation, that penetrate the heart of the believer that's rebellious or compromising or that he is wavering. The strength of the life of believers as they yield to God then, they stand fast after the warfare. Having done all to stand, end up standing because of the stability and the strength of God's word. They develop perseverance through the storms, the fiery trials, the tests of life, the temptations, giving hope, confidence, courage, and ultimate victory. Paul says, I have finished my course, and with joy. Now crowns laid up for me, and not me alone, but all those who love his appearing. Notice also, in order to give evidence of a shepherd, giving, given here by one shepherd. So the nature of the one teaching is identified as a shepherd. Jesus used this metaphor often. He is the good shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. Every other pastor is a under-shepherd to Jesus Christ. It is his sheep. They are his sheep, his church. They don't belong to the pastors, but he's responsible for those who sit under him. 
A shepherd lives with the sheep. A shepherd cares for the sheep, feeds the sheep, defends the sheep, and will even lay down his life for the sheep. Jesus touched all those points. And too often today, pastors are not shepherds. They're more like corporate managers, CEOs. They run businesses. They run in worldly methods, worldly manners. They don't teach the word of God to people. They don't warn the people. They're not there to weep with the people, to joy with the people. And so they're far removed. And so what they give is a, 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 a philosophy that's worldly with a sprinkling of some scripture. And, and people say, oh, no, no, I said, I don't know. He used scripture. Yeah, but how do you use it? And what, what is it doing to the people under him? Is there bringing transformation? Is there power in the life of the people? Is God number one in their life? And so the preacher acting as a shepherd here, Solomon in the book of Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes. The whole purpose is to instruct, to care. Solomon asked God for wisdom when he appeared to him the first time. Why? He said, I'm like a child. I can't, I don't know how to come in or go out with your people. Take them out. He acknowledged his own inability, and that's the first step. The problem is that as we keep going down the road, if God is doing so much for us, we start taking the credit for it, and then we start trusting ourselves rather than God. Due to his failures, he's warning not lovingly, authoritatively, out of love for man, because he's made it back. And he can look back and see all the destruction and all the loss of time. To those who much given, much more is required. It's not just your failure or mine. It's what's it going to do to others? And if I propagate my false doctrine, my false lie, and I teach it to others, I don't only give an account for my own lostness, but for those I have deceived. That's a her- terrible thing to even think about before God. Notice also, in order to teach his own son, he brings it right down to home. Look at verse 12 there. The additional caution here, and further my son. The word further means moreover, indicating importance here. Rehoboam is his son. Be admonished by these. The words in the book of Ecclesiastes, the word admonished means to be warned. Figuratively, it's used to send out light in order to pay heed. And words are light. They caution us. They, they warn us. They, they prepare us. The reference to these again, the words, the goes, the well-driven nails, the things that he's saying. The admonishment was in regards to not seeking meaning, satisfaction, and fulfillment in life through experience or words that are not related to God. In other words, there's things in the world that we study, math, science, and all that, that are true in themselves if they're purely scientific, not hypothesis. But if you're going to find meaning and fulfillment for life, you must find it through the direction and the illumination of God's word. This is what he's talking about. 
Rehoboam was not the wisest, as you know, when he came to the kingdom. Um, the people came to him and said, hey, listen, your dad was kind of heavy on us, and he collected a lot of taxes, put burdens on us. Why don't you give us some relief? And, you know, we'll serve you. And um, he gave him some time. They came back, and uh, he took counsel for the older men that served with his father. And, and they said, yeah, you know, your dad was kind of hard on them. Why don't you give him some relief? They'll serve you. Then he went to his friends, the young guys, the whippersnappers, uh, smart Alex. And, um, and they said, ah, tell them, your dad was a little finger. You're going to be like a thigh. And so the people came, and he gave the counsel to the young man, and that's it, man. He got up and said, hey, what do we have to do with the house of, uh, of David? And Jeroboam just split the kingdom. And so because of his foolishness, you had the northern kingdom, ten tribes, and the southern kingdom, two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. Reuben. That's it. Done. Civil war. Destruction. Because of leaning to his own understanding instead of God's word and the counsel of wise people. And you and I have seen much of this throughout our lives in different ways. Now notice still in 12 that Rehoboam was to know an important truth about the books written by man in contrast to God's word. Of making many books there is no end. So Rehoboam was to know that the life study of man's books regards of the generation of the time that people live, they're unending. And they always think they're the smartest, but it's a weariness to the flesh. Men have given themselves over to search knowledge and the questions of life through the wisdom of man, and they've been obsessed to it, and they come up with all kinds of weird stuff. And, and our generation is probably some of the weirdest in view of how much of true knowledge we have, that for us to accept the propagating lies that are said to be true, it's a greater accountability to us because of that. Philosophers of the past, sociologists, psychologists, sociologists, anthropologists, whatever, with the speculation, the theoretical questions and all, um, that really have no uh, answers and even the questions are foolish in themselves at times. Solomon is not speaking against knowledge of math or true science that is science. And a very simple definition of what science is is it can be seen and it can be replicated in a lab. If I drop my Bible, I see it fall, then I can go into a lab and drop my Bible and it will fall consistently every time. That is science. Okay? The moon comes up, the sun comes up, the other one goes down, the... Um, uh, the sea, it has its tides. All those things are science and laws of science. They are consistent. They can be replicated consistently. Hypothesis of evolution and everything else cannot. You have to invent the whole system. To say that you evolved from a simple cell is foolish. The simple cell is not that simple. There isn't enough billions of years, even trillions of years for it to happen by chance. It's not a simple cell. Microbiology makes that very, very clear today. Not that we haven't known it in the past. It's just that we deny it. So Solomon's warning about getting involved in the wisdom of man for the things of life instead of God's word. So we need to understand the benefit behind that, but we also have to understand the deception that comes in, very subtle, very, very subtle, because the world wants to puff you up to make you think you're an intellectual, you're smart. 
If your intellect defies or opposes the word of God, you're a fool. You're not very smart. But if you check everything by God's word, then you're going to accept true science, not hypotheses. Not philosophies that contradict nature, the natural law, and the word of God. It's just that simple. Solomon is saying God's word is the final answer to life, not man's books. One put it this way, neglect your business, you become bankrupt. Neglect your health, you go to the grave. Neglect your field, you have no harvest. Neglect your soul and be damned. Eternity is a stake. You have to live 100 years. What is that? When you're 99, it doesn't seem that long. <laughs> okay? It does when you're 10, but when you're 99, the 100th year where you're going to die, you don't think it's enough. Eternity is a stake. The scriptures teach God chastens his children, disciplines those he loves. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6, he quotes Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. And again, once again, you as parents did this, hopefully. You chasing your children because you love them. You want to direct them. You want to guide them. You want to make sure that they're going to make right decisions, know how to make decisions so that they can receive the benefit of life. The purpose of the church, again, is to teach saints to not be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Bad doctrine lies not only from the world secularly, but from within the church. The greatest danger is not outside the church. The greatest danger is inside the church. Judas Iscariots are not outside the church, they're inside. Balaam's are not outside, they're inside. Kors are not outside, they're inside. We're going to see that in Jude. Inside the church. That's the greatest danger. The shepherds or pastors over the churches are under shepherds. Jesus, the true shepherd, as 1 Peter 5, 4 says, and when God returns, when the Lord comes for us, he's going to reward every person according to their faithfulness and their true love for God and for the sheep. Very important. And time is the test of all things. Some shepherds began really great. Many of the pastors in Calvary Chapel began great. Today, God help them. I'm not saying all of them. That goes for the Baptist church, Presbyterian church, Methodist church, whatever it is. Beginning well doesn't mean you will end well. Time is the test of all things. And so the prayer of every parent for their children is that they walk with God, that they obey God, that they receive the benefits from God to know how to live life, to be that salt, to be that light to the community, that they walk in the truth, as John says. And so the purpose of the preacher was to teach God's word effectively, not just simply teach. As I said, many teachers teach 25 years. How long you? Oh, I was a teacher 25. No, you taught the same time 25 times. Same thing, you never grew, you never developed, you never matured, neither did your students. Wow. Get one of my teachings in 1980 and compare it for today. <laughs> Be a big difference. Not just the tone of my voice. <laughs> big difference. Notice thirdly, the purpose of the preacher was to teach the duty of man regarding God's word in verse 13 and 14. 
Look at 13. Solomon gives the correct understanding of the book so that it not be twisted or taught wrong. The author's commentary by way of interpretation, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. The word here is to listen attentively, to heed the words. This was the intent and conclusion, the goal of the words written by Solomon. Notice the author's clear message should not be missed regarding the words of the book. Fear God and keep his commandments. First to fear God. The word fear simply means to revere, but it also means terror. 314 times in the Old Testament. The idea is to stand in awe of God, his person, his power, in contrast to man. The idea also is that of worship and love and respect in view of God's grace, mercy, and love towards mankind. Fear of a person, consequences alone, is not enough to restrain a person, or is it the highest, purest uh, um, motive for obedience? It's love. If your love for God is not first, then your action will follow. It must be love, because sooner or later, if your love for you is greater than love for God, then everything else will go. Notice second, and to keep his commandments. The commandments of God deal with two things. Once again, I mentioned already, man's relationship to God, the first table of the law, the vertical, and man's relationship to man, the second table of the law. The vertical and the horizontal, the most important, the vertical. Jesus asked lawyers in uh, Matthew 22, 36-34, uh, they asked him, which is the greatest commandment? And they said, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, and soul, love your neighbor as yourself. The vertical, the horizontal. It's never changed. It's still the same. The commandments as law only point to our guilt. They do not justify us. So the law only proves us guilty. I've told you many times, I don't think any of you got a citation of commendation this morning from a policeman as he pulled you over in the, in the freeway, right? He writes you a ticket. Never writes you a commendation. The law is there because we're lawbreakers. Not that we don't get a ticket every day, we're just fortunate. Or that we don't get caught, we're fortunate. But we break the laws every time. We're lawbreakers. The commandments of God are for man's goods, to enjoy God, to enjoy man, to enjoy life. Not to destroy life. Notice the reason for both of these clear truths is stated. For this is man's all. This is what God requires of man. This is his duty because he's creating the image and likeness of God. His likeness, his image. And therefore, he holds us accountable and responsible to that. This is what God will enable men to do. And women who depend upon him, who turn to him, were born again, who walk by his word, who look to his power, not their own ability. The commentary of John Wesley is valuable at this point. Listen, the reference to the conclusion, he says, is the sum of all that has been said or written by wise men. The reference to the fear of God, which he puts here, is for all the inward worship of God, reverence and love and trust, and a de devotedness of heart to serve and to please him. And the reference to the whole matter is the whole work of business, his whole perfection and happiness. It is the sum of what men need either to know, do, or to enjoy life. It's the key. 
Notice 14, Solomon then explains why the whole duty of man is to fear God and to keep his commandments. It's a sobering thought. There is a day of accountability. For God will bring every work into judgment. The believer is judged at the bema seat of Christ, as you know. At the rapture, we go to the bema seat of Christ, and we are judged by the motive of our heart. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, and chapter 4, verse 5. God is not interested or impressed on what I have done or how much I have done. He's going to reward me why I did it and how I did it. Was it love for God and love for people? I get rewarded. If it's love for me, I want attention. Crispy critter, gone. Why throne judgment? Now, they're not going to grab you by the nap of the neck to see the pants and throw you off heaven. You get, you get taken in the rapture, you're in. You may suffer, suffer all loss of reward if, if you live the selfish life, but you're saved. But God wants to reward us. So we should do it for the right motive. The non-believer will be judged at the white throne judgment in Revelation 20. Right there, it's not a second chance for salvation. Right there, you are accounted for everything you did, good, bad, everything. And there'll be different degrees of punishment, like there's different degrees of reward. Okay? God is holy. Very important. Notice there will be nothing missed but brought to light, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. The reference to every secret thing means those things that are concealed here from people. See, some people think they're sharp because they, they you know, I, nobody knows. I have no idea. Really? It doesn't matter what men know. It's what God knows. The Bible says every idle word, wrong motive, and concealed thought, word and deed will be revealed, whether it be good or evil. Matthew 12, 36 to 37. The reference to good and evil must be directed to the believer for reward. Once again, the motive of the heart. Why I did it and how I did it. He's talking here to believers. Paul's dealing with the same thing. Our greatest need is not more knowledge, one said, but rather to put into practice what we already know. Isn't that the simplicity of life? We try to make it so complicated. We try to blame and excuse and everything else. And the bottom line is that. To live after the knowledge of God. The simplicity. You know, you can go through the scriptures. I mean, the Bible is monosyllabic. One syllable words. A child can read the Bible. It wasn't written for scholars. But for normal people. Our nation and many in the church have lost all sense of understanding what the fear of God is. As we examine their life, the way they live, and they still call themselves Christians, a contradiction. Impossible. Either they've never been born again or they walked away. They can tell me which one. But I'm not the important one. You have to do that before God. Listen about fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, Proverbs 9.10. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil, Proverbs 3.7. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate, Proverbs 8.13. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence and his children will have a place of refuge, Proverbs 14.26. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility, 
Proverbs 15.33. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. Proverbs 19.23. Do not let your heart um, envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the days. Proverbs 23.17. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord shall be saved. Proverbs 29.35. And there's a lot more the Bible says about the fear of the Lord. The thing that God desires most of all from man can be boiled down to one word. Obedience. What is it that you want of your children, ladies and gentlemen, more than anything else? Obedience. No different. The keeping of his commandments encompasses the whole revelation of God's word. Genesis to Revelation. You cannot be a smorgasbord Christian. You cannot say, well, I can take this, and I don't believe this. Really? The keeping of God's word has to do with attitude more than just doing it. Attitude. Once again, as a parent, your child may be doing what you told them to do, but their attitude. Attitude adjustment, right? They can be doing everything you tell them to, but what bugs you is their attitude. They may as well not do it. The agreement with God means with his standard. The attitude of acknowledging one's failure, confession, turning to him, depending upon him, so important. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Amos 3.3 says. Rhetorical question, only one correct answer, no. And we agree with God. He does not agree with us. Very, very clear. Those hardening their heart to repent are only um, treasuring up to themselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, Romans 2.5 says. Right now they seem to be wise in their own eyes, but on judgment day they will not be wise at all. God will judge according to truth, Romans 2.2 says. God will render to every man according to his deeds, Romans 2, 6 says. God will have no partiality, Romans 2, 11 says. God will judge the secrets of men's hearts by Jesus Christ according to the gospel, Romans 2, 16 says. Who is able to stand against such judgment? Only the believer who has repented and walked with God. No one else, ladies and gentlemen, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the purpose of the preacher was to teach the duty of man regarding God's word. This is the wise pastor and whatever church he is leading the people in to teach the word of God. Regardless of the culture, which way it goes, regardless of the fickleness of the people, he stands fast and he teaches and prays and is diligent to give God's word. He goes any other way, he becomes a fool, a complete fool. And so Solomon the preacher closes his book, declaring the purpose of writing the book. First, to teach God's word. Secondly, to teach God's word effectively. And thirdly, to teach the duty of man regarding God's 
word. Not just to listen, not just to have answers, but that it transform that individual and that they may be able to give answers to people who are asking those questions. And sometimes, if necessary, in your witnessing, you may have to use words. Your life should say everything that needs to be said, nothing less. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you for your grace, your love over us, every one of us, Lord. And we pray that you will continue to just use this location as a place of refuge for those who are so lost and, Father, have uh, brought destruction to their life, that you bring them to themselves, Lord, to be agreement with you. And the Lord, you would just save them. And so, Lord, we pray this morning as you minister to those who are listening here, abroad, over the world, over the radio, Lord, and, Father, just the Internet, that you would speak to their hearts, that, Lord, they would finish this year saved and not lost, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. God is not willing that any should perish, and yet he knows that the majority of people will perish because they will think the gospel is foolish. It's nonsense. And yet it's the power of God unto salvation. And if you believe that Jesus Christ is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, then you can call upon him and he will forgive you of your sins and make a new creature of you and make you a son or a daughter of God right now by grace through faith. Not of yourself, but a gift of God. If this is your desire, this is a simple prayer of repentance as you see yourself as a sinner before God in need of forgiveness and redemption. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.